today's reading is from 1 Samuel chapter 12, and I'll be reading the whole chapter. It's found on 281 in the Church Bible. Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you have said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I am old and grey, and my sons are here with you. I have been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand. Testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? Whom have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? From whose hand have I accepted a bribe to make me shut my eyes? If I have done any of these things, I will make it right. You have not cheated or oppressed us, they replied. You have not taken anything from anyone's hand. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you have not found anything in my hand. He is witness, they said. Then Samuel said to the people, It is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your ancestors up out of Egypt. Now then, stand here, because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. After Jacob entered Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help, and the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt, and settled them in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, so he sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazel, and into the hands of the Philistines, and the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, we have forsaken the Lord, and served the Baals and Ashtoreths. But now deliver us from the hands of our enemies, and we will serve you. Then the Lord sent Jeroboam, Barak, Jephthah, and Samuel, and he delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. But when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. Now here is the king you have chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Now then, stand still and do this great thing the Lord is about to, and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Is it not wheat harvest now? I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realise what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. Then Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. Do not be afraid, Samuel replied. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord. Do but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they are useless. 
For the sake of his great name, the Lord will not reject his people, because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. But be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he has done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. Good to see you. Good to be together this morning. Let me pray for us as we come to look at that bit of God's word. Heavenly Father, we are people who need to hear you speak. We need to know what you think. We need to know what we ought to do. We need you to tell us the truth. And so we pray that that part of your word that we've already read, as we spend this time now thinking about it, please, with your Holy Spirit, be powerfully at work among us to persuade us of its truth. And would you give us soft hearts so that we hear what you have to say to us, to each one of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, yesterday I had the privilege of uh, heading down south to uh, a bit of a do for my parents' golden wedding anniversary, 50 years married. And uh, there was a little bit where it was kind of, I, I get the nudge and go, you don't mind speaking in front of people, get everybody's attention, get everybody's attention. And I thought I was going to be asked to give an impromptu speech, so I was very pleased that I wasn't. I just had to sort of clink the glass for my dad to give a speech. And then you sort of think, well, what's he going to say? They've been married 50 years. What on earth is he going to say? There are a few uh, jokes in there and, and what have you. But it, it, was, it was a really lovely speech in the end. Uh, but it does. people do go, well, what's he going to say? What's he going to say? And speeches are a bit like that, aren't they? When somebody stands up and they're going to say a few words, what are they going to say? Farewell speeches, which I'm very glad to say yesterday's wasn't. <laughs> but farewell speeches can be even more fascinating, can't they? When someone is leaving, what will they choose to say? Who will they thank? What parting message will they leave people with? Will they have one last chance to have their say on the subject? Give someone a little subtle dig or, or an encouragement? What somebody says when they step down tells you a lot, especially if they've been fired. And that's the situation Samuel finds himself in, uh, in our passage this morning. Over the past couple of months, we've been following Samuel from his birth, well, from before his birth, through his birth, through to becoming the spiritual leader of Israel, until last week, when we came to the bit, when the people asked for somebody else. They asked for a king instead. I'm sorry, Samuel, we don't want you to be the judge anymore. We want a king. And so they anointed Saul as the first ever king of Israel. And he quickly proved himself to be a very good warrior. And so we read this at the end of chapter 11. So all the people went to Gilgal and made Saul king in the presence of the Lord. There they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. And Saul and all the Israelites held a great celebration. This is the dawn of the kingdom. At last, they've got this big party now. They're going to celebrate the coronation, as we will, I'm sure, in six weeks or so, when Charles III is crowned. But as we come into chapter 12, it's time for the speeches. Samuel takes the microphone. He addresses the nation for the last time ever. What is he going to say? Some funny stories. Do you remember that time when they stole the Ark of the Covenant? Do you remember that? 
No, it's not that sort of speech. He treats the whole thing like it's a court case. So three times in the passage that we read earlier, he says something like, here I stand, or stand here, which is legal language. That is addressing the court. He is literally taking the stand. And he's doing it to lay out the case against us. He's laying out the case against us. And yes, I do say us, because what he has to say to them is just as challenging to us if we're ready to hear it. He doesn't use his farewell speech to take a little rosy walk down memory lane. It is a full-on challenge with a very strong case against us that we need to answer. So he starts off his speech, he starts off the trial by putting himself in the dock. It's a bit of a bold move, but he's confident he's going to be found innocent. So he starts off in verse 1, I've listened to everything you've said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and grey and my sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth until this day. Here I stand, testify against me in the presence of the Lord and his anointed. That's quite a bold move, isn't it? Say, you've known me since I was tiny little lad. I've been leader of Israel for absolutely ages. Accuse me of stuff. Any grievances you've got, now's the time to get them out in the open. It's my last day. I'm handing over to Saul. If there are any issues, now's the time to set them right. And he said, whose ox have I taken? Has anybody got a donkey that I stole? Have I cheated you? Have I oppressed you? Have I taken a bribe from you to shut my eyes, look in the other direction? No, I'll take a, take a, uh, a backhander and, and let you get on with what you shouldn't be doing. If I've done any of that, tell me and I'll put it right. Okay, my age is against me, I think he's saying. My sons, they're not great. Okay, but can you fault me? How many kickbacks have I taken? Let's open the records. Let's check the tapes with VAR. Have I done anything wrong? And the people all say, in verse 4, no, you have not cheated or oppressed us. Samuel is innocent. And to make that even stronger, in verse 5, he calls a witness to the stand, two witnesses, the new king, Saul, and the Lord. Samuel said to them, the Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed is witness this day, that you've not found anything in my hand. I'm as innocent as the day is long. Why do we need to know that? Why does he start his speech like that? Well, I, I think part of it is it's a good thing to do, is to begin with taking the speck out of your own eye before you take the log out of your brother's eye, and he is about to take a sort of lumber yard out of, out of their eye. But uh, his own innocence gives him the right to judge them. Because even this bit is part of his case against them. Do you remember back in chapter 8 what he warned them about. He had warned them, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and serve with his chariots. He will take your daughters. He will take your fields, your vineyards, your olive groves. He will take the best of your cattle, your donkeys. He will take for his own use. That's what a king will be like. As Colin put it last week, kings are take, take, take. They are worse than HMRC. There is no set of rules that they're abiding by other than I would quite like that, therefore I will have it. That's what they will be like. And Samuel, he was a leader. He says, is that what I was like? No. No, you weren't like that at all. And yet you still wanted a king instead. Interesting. Okay. 
Okay. So Samuel is innocent. And that's sort of level one of his argument, of his case that he's building against them. That he's saying, I haven't done anything wrong when you fired me. Is that that's all clear? No gross negligence? No, nothing like that? No? Okay. And so then the next person takes the stand uh, to, to see how they get on. And it is the Lord himself, who unsurprisingly is also innocent. Verse 7 explains what's happening when he says this. Now then, stand here, because I'm going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your ancestors. So now he's saying, right, we're now going to do a thorough investigation into God's conduct. And yet it's going to be them who are confronted. Isn't that interesting? I'm going to confront you with everything he's done. Because the Lord's innocence in how he's treated them proves again their guilt. So verse 8, he draws the attention of the court to the events of the Exodus, long, 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 long time ago. And he's basically saying, when the people were in Egypt, when your ancestors were in Egypt, they cried to the Lord for help. What did he do? Did he leave them to die? Did he ignore their cries for help? No, of course not. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your ancestors out of Egypt, and settled them in this place. How kind was that? He raised up leaders. He rescued the people. He brought them out of slavery, gave them a land of their own. God has been so kind to them. And how did they respond to that? Verse 9, but they forgot the Lord their God. Now, if somebody saved your life, you would probably remember them, wouldn't you? You might remember them. You might at least remember that it happened. You wouldn't turn around and stab that person in the back. You wouldn't go, oh, yeah, I totally, I just totally forgot about you. I couldn't remember anything about that. But that's what they did. They forgot about him. And worse, they then went off with other gods. It talks there about the Baals and the Ashtoreths. They went off with these other gods. And so they landed themselves in hot water again. The list's all kinds of enemies, Sisera, Philistines, Moabites. The list just goes on. They keep getting themselves in trouble that they can't get themselves out of. And each time, verse 10 says, they cried out to the Lord. Each time they cried out to the Lord and said, we've made a terrible mistake. We've sinned. We've done it again. I'm so sorry. This time, this time it's going to be different. They promise they're going to change. This time I'm going to serve God properly. And what does God do? He rescues them again. He rescues them again and he gives them a leader. He gives them a savior. Verse 11 says, Then the Lord sent Jeroboam and Barak, Jephthah, Samuel. He delivered you from the hands of your enemies all around you so that you lived in safety. Isn't God kind? Hasn't he been faithful over and over and over and over again? Every time you've needed him, he's been there. And so he lists a bunch of the judges from the book of Judges. And these are all people, those people that he lists, who are listed in Hebrews 11. When, when we get to the New Testament, you want to have some great people of the faith. These people are all in that list. These are people in particular who helped Israel get rid of false gods. So, so Gideon is in that list, but he doesn't get called Gideon. He gets called his nickname, Jeroboam. That was the name he was given after he destroyed Baal's altars. Barak, he was the one who got rid of Sisera with a bit of help from the woman with the tent peg, if you remember that story. Jephthah got rid of the Philistines. 
And, and then Samuel names himself in there, in the third person for some reason. But he lists himself. He goes, you, God's given you time and again all these different people. Go read the book of Judges. Over and over and over again. The rescuers that God has raised up to save his people, to bring them back on track. Can you see how this is evidence of all the righteous acts performed by the Lord? He's saying, look at what God has done time and time again for you. Every time you've sinned, every time you've messed up, you've, you've rejected him. He has saved you. He's rescued you. He's given you what you need. And then you've, res- you've abandoned him again. Samuel's innocent. So is the Lord. He gets put on trial. He gets utterly vindicated. There's no accusation against God that can stand. So he's innocent as well. What about them? What about the people he's talking to there? Well, unsurprisingly, they are as guilty as it comes. We see the shift in verse 12 when he goes, but, in verse 12 there, but, but when this thing happened to you, this is how you reacted. When Samuel treated you so well, when the Lord treated you perfectly, you didn't respond in kind. That's his argument here. Instead, let's see what they did do. It says, but when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, no, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was your king. See how it's all been building to that, his case that he's building against them. You've already got a king. It was God. To ask for a king now is to say no to the Lord. It's interesting the reason that Samuel gives about it being when you saw that Nahash was coming against you. That isn't the reason the people gave uh, originally when they asked for a king. There's no mention of this Nahash character until chapter 11. But he's seeing behind their reasoning. Their reasons they were asking really was worry, fear. They were afraid of this person Nahash and what he would do to them. They didn't trust God. They didn't trust that God would sort it out. And so, in a way, this rejection of God, sometimes we can think that can be a very uh, high-handed pride, I'm so great, I don't need you. Well, for them, it came from a place of doubt. Self-doubt, yes, but worse, doubt against God, saying, I just think that this one is beyond you. I don't think you can help me with this one. I know I'm in trouble. I know I can't sort it out myself, but I also don't think you can sort it out. I need somebody else. We need a king. That's what we need. That's what everybody else has. All the other nations have got a king. We need a king. We need one of those. We need somebody powerful we can put our hopes in, just not God. Has he ever failed them before? No. Has there ever been an enemy that he couldn't send packing? No. Has he ever failed to give them the leaders that they need? No, he's listed Moses, Aaron, um, all the different judges. But this time, I'm sure he can't help me. Whatever current crisis we're in feels like the worst one, doesn't it? It always feels like, this one's different, we we tell it to ourselves. We say, this is way, way worse. Every nightmare situation of the past, we've made it through with God's help. He's always done what, what we've needed. In the past with them, he'd always raised up somebody to rescue them. 
But now, for probably the first time ever, they actually just look that leader in the eye and go, Samuel, go away. We have a replacement lined up. It was completely unjust. They had just sworn with God as their witness, Samuel had done nothing wrong, but nevertheless, get lost. And so graciously, Samuel and the Lord had given them a king. And they'd given them an ultimatum. In verse 14, here are your options. If you fear the Lord, serve him and obey him and do not rebel against his commands. And if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good, that's option one. But if you do not obey the Lord and if you rebel against his commands, his hand will be against you as it was against your ancestors. Learn the lesson of history here. That's your choice, he's saying to them. Pick a side. Because up until now, you keep picking wrong. And then to underline their guilt, Samuel performs a miracle. He, he does this act of judgment. Again, using legal language in verse 16. Now then, stand still. You stay in the dock. Stand still and see this great thing the Lord is about to do before your eyes. He reminds them what time of year it is. It's the wheat harvest around May or June, the dry season. Rain is unheard of. And Samuel calls on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and it comes, verse 18. Samuel called on the Lord, and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain. So all the people stood in awe of the Lord and of Samuel. This is like kind of six inches of snow suddenly falling in the Sahara just because some bloke said so. It is a shock to them. And it's a terrible judgment. You might sort of go, well, what's so bad about a spot of rain? You can't live this close to Wales and be frightened of the weather, can you? But a storm at harvest could kill all the crops, could make all the grain rot, could bring on a famine. And what's worse, thunder in 1 Samuel so far has been a sign of judgment. Do you remember that's how they beat the Philistines in chapter 7 was God sent thunder. And now he's using it against Israel. They've broken the covenant with him. They've broken the agreement about how to live with God. And now all of those covenant curses, all of those terms and conditions, if you like, are about to fall on them. This has been the case against them, that they've rejected God. They are guilty as charged, and so they're facing the punishment. Now, before we find out what happened next, let's consider how this speaks to us. If we were put in the dock and we had to answer that same case, how would we fare? I mean, it wouldn't be exactly the same, would it? But if you're anything like me, we wouldn't want to do that. Would you feel comfortable to do what Samuel did? Just stand up in front of everybody who's ever known you and say, come on, I'm inviting some criticism. <laughs> We'd probably feel a little bit worried about that, that we wouldn't be found innocent in the same way. In many ways, we are like Israel, aren't we? How many times has God helped us? How many times have we forgotten him, walked away from him, replaced him with other things that we prefer? Probably not with Baal, probably not with another actual God, but with all sorts of other stuff that clogs up our lives, that we've got no more room left for him. We push him out 
with all the things we think are more important, whatever keeps you from God is your God. Whatever keeps you from God is your God. That is the thing you're trusting. That's the thing we're worshipping. And like Israel before us, we worry, we doubt, we think our present circumstances are more than God can handle. And so we look elsewhere. We Give us a king, we shout out, or at least give us that thing or, or the other thing, and then we'll be okay. Not you, God, something else. Give me that, and then I'll be all right. And it's always a saying no to God. I don't want you to rule me. I can rule myself, or I can find something else that will rule over me. And very often, as he did by giving them King Saul, the Lord gives us what we want. He says, fine. You don't want me in your life. You don't want me to help you. Okay. I will leave you to it. Now, maybe that is you. Maybe you have someone who has opted out from God. Can I ask you, how is that working out for you? How is that going? Is it everything you'd hoped for? Or could it be that you know in your heart of hearts that you made a bad decision? Sometimes when we wonder about that, I think we can start to bargain with God like they did. Each time come back, oh, this time I'm going to change. I'll be a good boy this time. If you just help me out of this jam, I promise I'll be different. And then things don't change. Because the next time trouble comes, we don't think God will help us. We fear he isn't enough. When he's always been more than enough. When he has raised up for us a rescuer, hasn't he? A leader, a king even. Somebody who's going to guide us and save us. He's raised up for us, the Lord Jesus. The ultimate way God's provided for us. The leader, the saviour for all time. And like Samuel, we look him in the face and we go, no. Not him. We want somebody else. We reject the one God has raised up for us. And for no good reason at all. If God was a tyrant, then sin would be slightly more understandable, wouldn't it? But he's been nothing but good to us. He's innocent. And so like him, like them, sorry, we are guilty. The case against them is the case against us. Left to ourselves, we are facing that kind of judgment. Worse than rain, worse than thunder. A permanent state of being given what we ask for, being separated from God's goodness and his love. So Samuel's farewell speech probably put a bit of a dampener on the party. It is more like a court case, isn't it? Piece by piece, building his own case, dismantling our excuses. And if it ended there, that would be, that would be just... But it would be quite sad if he sort of did mic drop, I'm off into retirement now, see you later. But it doesn't end there. As he'd been so many times before, God was merciful to them. There is a case to answer. There is a case against us. But there is also grace for us. There is grace for us. Grace is God's kindness, his goodness, his love that we don't deserve. His forgiveness, his mercy. That is what he offers. Now, we mustn't rush to it too quickly as if we sort of go, 
I don't really need to listen to that first bit because there's grace, so it's fine. Because actually part of what grace is, is that acknowledgement that we don't deserve it. But there is grace available. The sending of that storm was intended as an eye-opener, wasn't it? You see that in verse 17. I will call on the Lord to send thunder and rain, and you will realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for a king. This is part of God's grace to us. In his kindness, he tells us the truth about ourselves. He holds up a mirror so we can see our sin. We can recognize it. Until he shows us, we cannot see it. We'll deny it till we're blue in the face, won't we? But when he shows us what we're really like, we are struck to the heart, just like the Israelites were. See how they respond in verse 19. The people all said to Samuel, Pray to the Lord your God for your servants, so that we will not die. For we have added to all our other sins the evil of asking for a king. They completely own up. They can see the error of their ways. They can understand why it was so bad to reject God like that. And they don't think this little episode with the king is a blip on their otherwise spotless record. They acknowledge, don't they, their long history of sin. Their deeply ingrained habits of saying no to him. They're saying, we, we've, we've added to our other sins, our many other sins, this sort of cherry on the cake, the last straw of saying no to you like this. If we can see that's true of us, that actually say, this isn't just talking about a bunch of people a long time ago, that's very similar to what I've done or what I do or what I did. That is God being gracious to us. Because when we see our sin, we can actually ask for some help, can't we? We can cry out. The people back then did that. They begged Samuel to speak to God on their behalf. Pray for us, please, so we don't die. And God is gracious. I was just so struck by this this week, how fantastic it is that when judgment is looming, when we admit our sin, what does he say? Too late. We've already had Moses and Aaron and Barak and all the other people. This is the last straw, sorry. No, when judgment is looming, we admit our sin. He says, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet... And that is a glorious word, isn't it? To say yet to them, that, that this isn't the end for them. Verse 22 is just wonderful. For the sake of his great name... The Lord will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. God is saying, you might be here, there and everywhere, but I'm committed to you. I've made you mine. I'm pleased to make you mine. And because of that, he's not going to reject his people. When we return to him, he welcomes us back. As one person put it, this chapter is condemnation, but is not finally condemnation. It is gospel. This is good news. We do need to see our great evil, see this great thing, 
this great evil, but we also need to see the Lord's great love, his commitment to us, his steadfastness in the face of our flakiness. There is grace for us. And so the people ask Samuel to intercede. In verse 23, he agrees to do that. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I will teach you the way that is good and right. He's been innocent up until now, but he's saying, I would spoil that record if I don't pray for you. That was so much part of his job, yes, to tell them God's judgment when that was coming, but also to extend to them God's grace. I wouldn't be doing my job properly if I didn't say to you, yet, yet there is still hope. Of course there is. And I think in that verse, Samuel's laying out what his role is going to be from now on, praying for them, and teaching them. They aren't going to have a king anymore, so he's not going to be the leader from now on. And for the rest of the book, Samuel takes a back seat. It's kind of strange that they're one and two Samuel, really, because he, he kind of bows out of the story here. He becomes an advisor. He appears a, a few more times, and then he dies. But until that happens, he's going to pray for them, and he's going to teach them what's right. God's grace is going to keep flowing to them because there is a man standing in the gap who is going to bring messages from God and requests to God from the people. And one last time in this story, Samuel is drawing our attention to the Lord Jesus, isn't he? The far greater leader, far greater judge, prophet, priest, and all the other things that Samuel is. If we continue without him, we are ruined. But when we stick with him, we have a Savior who will never fail to pray for us. As, as Steve helpfully said in his prayer, the Lord Jesus intercedes for us. He teaches us the way that's good and right. He is the way that's good and right, the way, the truth, and the life. There is grace for us through Jesus. He is the person we need to turn to. He's the person we need to admit our sin our guilt, to hold our hands up and say, that, that is absolutely me, and plead for his grace. Because we face the same choice that they did. As I said, if we continue our lives without him, it will not be good. It certainly won't end well. But if we are coming to Jesus, let's stick with him. Let's stick with him. We would be stupid not to. I think that's what Samuel's saying when he says, do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away after useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you, because they're useless. <laughs> Did I mention that they're useless? God alone is God. Those other cheap imitations, they don't work. They only lead to disaster. And so, verse 24, be sure to fear the Lord, serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will perish. We need to choose, don't we? We need to choose, and not just once, we need to choose every day. We need to keep picking the right side. We need to be choosing, today I'm going to fear and serve the Lord wholeheartedly. Because of the great things that he's done for us. Not just the great things he did for them, but what he has done for me, what he has done for us. Samuel's farewell speech 
marks the end of an era. It is the dawn of the kingdom, and that means it's the sunset of the judges, if you like. People like him are on the way out. And as we close our series in 1 Samuel, hopefully we'll pick it up another time, picking up from where Saul takes off. But as we close today, could today be a point where we bring in a new era for us, for you? Where we say to ourselves, right from now on, this is going to be one of wholehearted service. From now on, this is going to be one of those things where my guilt is going to be brought to God and it's going to be met with His grace. And so I'm going to come back to Him for good. That's what Samuel's hoping. He didn't say, right, everybody, ding, 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 time for the speeches. Right, you're all doomed. See you later. No, he, he, he gets their attention. He draws their attention to what they need to hear. And the Lord brings people to see their need. And then he gives them what they need, which is his grace, just as we need it. Let's pray uh, for ourselves. Heavenly Father, we uh, haven't asked for a king. We haven't done those exact same things that they did. But in many ways, we have rejected you. We have said no to you. We have failed to trust that you will give us what we need. And so we want to turn to you and ask for your grace. We thank you for the Lord Jesus, who you have raised up to rescue us. Help us to put our faith in him. Help us to trust and follow him wholeheartedly. Lord, there may be people today who have completely wandered away, who need to come back. Would that be happening today? But there may also be many of us who, who just know in, in big ways and small ways, we need your grace today. So please would you comfort us and give us what we need in the Lord Jesus. Amen.